Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Workheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today is part one of a two-part conversation I had with Josh Milburn. Josh has been on the show before when we talked about his work on lab-grown animal products, and I'll put a link to that previous episode in the show notes. This time, though, we're talking about his new book, which is called Just Fodder, The Ethics of Feeding Animals. It looks at the ethical questions around what we feed to animals and what we allow them to feed on. It was a really interesting conversation, and we ended up talking so long that I'm going to split it into two parts. In this first part, we'll talk about the inspiration for the book, and then focus on the ethics of feeding those companion animals that live with us, particularly dogs and cats, but also our backyard birds. So first, let me read Josh's biography. Josh Milburn is a philosopher who writes about animals, food, and politics. He recently joined Loughborough University in the United Kingdom, where he's now a lecturer in political philosophy and a British Academy postdoctoral fellow. His first book, Just Fodder, The Ethics of Feeding Animals, is being released by McGill Queen's University Press and, as of recording, is just now available, so go check it out. His second book, Food, Justice, and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully, is due to be released by Oxford University Press in 2023. Josh is also the host of Knowing Animals, a podcast featuring interviews with animal studies scholars. And in fact, uh, I was a guest on one episode of that show, so I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. But now, here's the first part of my conversation with Josh Milburn. A nice way to start this conversation would be just to talk about the animals that we live with in our own houses. Um, I, I'll go first. Uh, I have two dogs who are brothers, Stalin and Bron, who are... Uh, rescue dogs that we found down here um, on the street in the valley down here in South Texas. Uh, they've been with us since they were puppies. They're named after uh, brothers in Irish myth, actually. And uh, I feed both of them uh, vegan dog food, just vegan dry dog food. You know, we hang out with them. We play with them. It's nice for the boys, my two sons. Uh, recently, we've, uh, I don't know if we've adopted, we're taking care of, maybe fostering, maybe someone else will take these, two cats like at two different times, just a few months apart from each other, just came to our back door, pawed at our back door, wouldn't leave, uh, you know, wanted to be handled, clearly had been handled when they were young because um, they weren't, you know, particularly wild and they were very small. Um, but we're getting thinner and thinner, perhaps left alone too young to take care of for themselves, weren't able to, se- seemingly not able to find food for themselves. So we brought them inside and we're taking care of them. Um, first, we looked to see if somebody had lost their pets. Then we looked to see if somebody wanted any pets. Neither of those things have come about yet. We're looking increasingly less hard for somebody to take care of these cats, so we'll see what happens. Um, but both of them, I don't feed vegan food to. I feed, uh, you know, uh, non-vegan, normal, I guess, cat food. I mean, you know, fancy cat food because I'm that kind of a person, but normal in the sense of, you know, non-vegan cat food. Um, when I worked, I used to work at a pet supply store when I was in college, and what I heard at the time is that you can't feed cats uh, vegan food because they need taurine and other sorts of amino acids that they can only get for meat. Um, we'll talk later when we get to some of the actual chapters of your book, whether or not that's true. Um, but, you know, having those animals in our house, they're uh, very much a part of our family. Our children are deeply bonded with them. We hang out with them all the time. They are, you know, friends of ours. We talk to them. Uh, the two cats sit on my lap while I'm writing. The dogs are way too energetic for that, but we take them on walks. And, you know, they're very much a part of our lives. And I think that's common for a lot of people. 
So how about you? What, what animals other than humans do you live with? Yeah, really interesting idea to start with. And we'll definitely get into the cat-dog distinction because that's something that comes up again and again in this conversation. But I think it's nice that you note that you are feeding your dog to plant-based, capable plant-based food, because that means straight away you understand where I'm coming from to a certain extent. Because I think some people, when I talk about this book and this project, they look at me with horror. They don't understand what the project is at all. But to answer your question, I'm not actually someone who has been around animals all my life, around companion animals all my life. Anyways, I've certainly been around animals of various kinds all my life. Um, I had... Growing up, I had a few small pets, and as a young adult, I had a hamster, for example. But it's only actually quite recently that we started to adopt dogs. So we got a dog called Holly, who is a Jack Russell. We adopted her just before the pandemic really kicked off. So whatever year that was, I think 2019, end of 2019, we adopted her. And the reason we adopted her then was because we bought a house and so we had a little bit of stability. And like a lot of academics, I've moved around a lot and I haven't had the stability. And that's really the reason I haven't adopted animals. We adopted another dog more recently. There's quite an interesting story there. This is Casper, who is a young spaniel. And Casper was adopted from a relative. Our relative had adopted a dog herself from a breeder. And unbeknownst to her, the dog was heavily pregnant. Mm. And so Casper's mother gave birth to this litter of surprise puppies. And so we adopted one of them. So despite the fact we never buy from a breeder, we did have a puppy. So that was that was a surprise. We never thought we'd have that. Holly was around one when we adopted her. So she was just a little bit beyond the puppy stage, but she still behaved like a puppy to a certain extent. But I think what's interesting to note is that although these dogs are an enormous part of my life now, they weren't a part of my life for the most of the time I was writing this book. So this wasn't necessarily a book reflecting on my own interactions with animals, um, whether that is companion animals or whether that's other animals. For example, I talk a lot about feeding the birds, and that is something I do a huge amount of now. My garden is full of bird feeders. But when I was writing this book, I didn't live in a house with a garden, so I didn't have bird feeders in the garden. So I think that in many ways, this isn't a book that feeds directly from my own experience or, or draws directly from my own experience. Um, like some people who write in this area, although it is drawing from the experiences I would have liked to have had <laughs> and that I am now having to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, actually, I should have mentioned birds. My uh, my mom lives with us. We live in a we have like a little attached house that my mom and her husband can live in, so which is great because the kids can run through the backyard um, and they feed the birds on their side of the backyard. And uh, I'd suggested to her that she might want to stop because uh, there was a bird flu going around and they had suggested uh, in some parts of Texas that you not feed wild birds for like a few months because uh, there was a possibility of them congregating together when you do that, obviously, and then they could spread diseases. Um, And it really upset her, like taking that break, you know, feeding the birds and looking at them out her window. uh, She has limited mobility. It was, is again, such a big part of her life that even though those aren't we would think of as companion animals. They are definitely companions to her paying attention to who comes and their interactions between each other. Like, you know, it's not just like, uh, like flowers. It's not just like a pretty background, but like she knows individual ones and the way that they act together. Um, that, that sort of, you know, engagement in another being's life is like, is really meaningful to her and was uh, a really hard thing for her to put pause on. Um, Oh, definitely. And I think that 
the way I frame it in the book is I distinguish between what I call animal family members, like the dogs and cats we were just talking about, and what I call animal friends. And the paradigm example are the birds that we feed in our garden. They're a kind of animal neighbour, I suggest. Now, I accept that this conceptualization of friend doesn't necessarily match with some classic definitions of friendship in philosophy, not the Aristotelian. Yeah, I was going to say, not Aristotle's. Aristotle's like, you need to feed birds. I don't remember that in the Nicomachean Ethics. <laughs> no. Well, Aristotle's not that big on animals anyways, as we know. Yeah. Oh, well, not in the way that I am. He's yeah. certainly interested in biology. But I think that there's mm-hmm. something there's something friend-like in the relationship that people have with birds in their garden or, you know, other animals that they feed, hedgehogs, raccoons, uh, and I know raccoons are fraught. Some people mm-hmm. see them as real enemies. Some people see them as real friends. But I think that, that that's something that is the case with human friends as well, right? There's this difference in the way that different people are going to view individuals, and there's this difference in the way that different people are going to view the animals in their garden or the animals in their spaces, or the animals in parks who they encounter. They're all animal neighbours, but the way we interact with them can be friend-like, can be for-like, or sometimes it's just neutral. You know, we get on with our lives, they get on with their lives. And I think those differences are quite ethically interesting, and that's why I explore in Chapter 3. Yeah, that's cool. And it's certainly true. Like, when my mom feeds birds, she's explicitly trying to exclude other animals, like squirrels and, God knows, possums and rats, from getting uh, bird feed. Whereas uh, her aunt, my great aunt, uh, Franny, she used to feed all of the animals. Like she would come and feed raccoons. She would feed possums. She'd feed all the animals that lived behind her house. So certainly, yeah, we had these different kinds of relationships. So if you didn't have pets at the time, um, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, well, it takes me right back actually to the start of my PhD. So I was writing a PhD thesis, and I should clarify, here in the UK, we start on the PhD and immediately start on the thesis. So we don't have the kind of all book dissertation thing that uh, American PhD students have. You're missing out that kind of uh, like weird time that never ends where you feel like, what am I? What am I doing with my life? That kind of self-doubt, I think, is an important process of the American PhD program. Oh, we have the self-doubt. We just don't get over it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The... So around the time at start of the PhD, I was writing a PhD thesis, uh, which ended up being called The Political Turn in Animal Ethics. So this is about animal ethics, but what politics can add to these conversations and political theory can add. And that's very much the area I still work in. I went along to a conference, uh, which was the Mansept Workshops in Manchester in the UK. Now, the Mansept Workshops has played a really important part in cementing the political turn in animal ethics, this subdisciplinary group or this interdisciplinary group, however you want to frame it, of people doing political philosophy and animals. And so this was a really eye-opening conference for me. And lots of the people there I've ended up working with quite extensively since. And I now actually um, convene a workshop on animal politics every year at the Mansept Workshops. Uh, actually, the uh, at time of recording, the call for papers, calls for abstracts closes next week. But I think by the time this is released, it will be missed. In any case... Um, At this particular conference, there was a colleague, a Canadian philosopher called Catherine Wayne. And Cassie was presenting a paper on cats in the zoopolis. Now, this word zoopolis will be familiar to lots of listeners. And it's the title of a book by Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicker, published in 2011. So at the time, this was brand new out. And everybody there at this conference was really excited about it. Let me just read you a quick passage from Zoopolis. It's from their chapter on domesticated animal citizens. So they're talking about the feeding of 
domesticated animals. And they say cats are the only true carnivores amongst domesticated animals and thus pose a unique challenge in human-animal society. There may be no way for humans to have cat companions without dealing with a certain level of moral complexity regarding their diet and other restrictions necessary for them to be part of human-animal society. Does this level of restriction undermine the possibility of cats being flourishing members of a mixed society? Does it mean that we will be justified in bringing about their extinction? At the very least, it means that any individual human contemplating having a companion cat is signing on for a great deal of responsibility in terms of doing the work to ensure their cat flourishes under the necessary restrictions. And Catherine Wayne was taking that, those questions that Donaldson and Kimlick are asking Zoopolis and running with them and exploring them and saying, look, if we need to kill animals for cats to flourish, that sounds like they couldn't flourish in a Zoopolis the zoopolis being a society in which animals' rights are respected. And of course, the killing of animals is not consistent with the respect for their rights, aside from the occasional complicated counterexample relating to euthanasia or something like that. Yeah, you're attacked by a bear or whatever, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so that raises a really difficult question. And Catherine Wayne's answer in the presentation, as I recall it, was that this might mean if cats can't flourish on plant-based diets, that were justified in, as Donaldson and Kimlicka say, bringing, out the, bringing about the extinction of cats, quite contrary to the vision of Zoopolis as an alternative to the abolitionist future in which humans and animals are completely separate. Mm-hmm. Zoopolis is meant to be a future in which humans and animals coexist, but respectfully. But then the question is, how can cats exist in that environment? Now, Catherine Wayne never published that particular paper, as far as I know, But it sparked a real interest in me. And I ended up writing a paper on a similar kind of subject about feeding cats and feeding carnivores and feeding companion animals. And kind of one thing led to another, right? And I started to think about these more. And I started to realize that actually questions about the feeding of animals go far beyond questions about companion animals because we feed animals in all kinds of situations. Yeah, I realised that neither in animal ethics nor the philosophy of food were these questions really being addressed at any great length. Sometimes they weren't mentioned at all. Sometimes they were flagged as a side issue and then then passed over. Mm-hmm. So what I did when I was finishing off the PhD, I put together a research proposal on this exact topic. I thought this was an interesting thing to move on to from the PhD. And I ended up doing a postdoc at Queen's in Canada Queen's University in Canada with Will Kimlicker and Sue Donaldson was based at Queen's as well. And so I ended up working with exactly the people who have indirectly inspired this this area of research, this question, this puzzle. And so I worked with them for a year and put most of this book together. This was back in 2016 to 2017, um, though, as we know, these things often take longer than a year. So it took a little bit longer than that to finish off the book. And I'm really pleased that it's now finally coming out in 2022. Yeah, that's great. So uh, yeah, you just talked about uh, the philosophy of food. And you say, in fact, in the introduction that you are trying to draw on the philosophy of food and animal philosophy both. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of cross-fertilization? Yeah, I think that this is something we need to be doing more of. And actually, I'm really excited about your podcast in that it is a philosophy of food podcast, right? Because it's so easy to miss that philosophy of food is a discipline that exists, that asks its own questions, that has its own concepts, has its own approaches. And a lot of these things are up for grabs, of course. We know this is 
a field with people coming at it from lots of different directions. But I think that one of the striking things about animal ethics is that animal ethicists talk about food all the time, but they often don't do philosophy of food, right? Because they're not actually engaging with food as a subject in its own right. And they're not engaging with this wider literature on the philosophy of food. And I can't pretend that what I do is a perfect example of that. But I would <laughs> like to hope that when I'm doing my animal ethics, I am aware of these parallel conversations in the philosophy of food and aware of the things that philosophy of food might be able to add to animal ethics. So let me give, let me give just a couple of examples of where it goes wrong and where I think it could go right. Sure. So Peter Singer. Animal Liberation, a kind of founding text. Yeah, you may have come across this one. <laughs> kind of founding text of animal ethics as we do it in the analytic tradition, but also something that's very widely read in philosophy more broadly, very widely read by animal activists and food activists. And Singer has a passage there where he says something like, well, why are we eating animals? Um, well, it's because of taste, and taste just isn't that important. Now, Tom Reagan, who writes The Case for Animal Rights, and he's one of these other founding figures of animal ethics, he has a great little passage where he quotes Singer on this and says, well, actually, I know a lot of really thoughtful, intelligent, caring people who really care about taste a great deal. They spend a lot of time perfecting cooking. They spend a lot of time seeking out and a lot of money going to the best restaurants and eating the best food, the best wines. And I think that Philosophy of food, for example, has done a lot to reflect on the value of taste from aesthetics, from ethics, from various areas of philosophy. Philosophers of food have looked at taste and phenomenology, of course, and philosophy of sensation. have looked at taste and what it means and what it adds and what it can do. So that's an example, I think, of where animal ethicists sometimes overlook something that the philosophy of food is quite good at. But then in this book, an example that I use, so we were just talking about feeding the birds in the garden. One of the lenses or a lens that I suggest might really shine a light on the kind of ethical complexity of feeding garden birds and other garden wildlife is the idea of hospitality. And this is something I borrow directly from the ethics of food. So Elizabeth Telfer, for example, um, an early proponent of philosophy of food based in, I think, Edinburgh at the time, I believe she's retired now. She wrote this great book, I think it was called Food for Thought or something like that. In any case, this was in the early 90s, and she's one of the first people to really take philosophy of food seriously. And she addresses this idea of hospitality. Now, all the philosophers of food have tried hospitality from other directions. So Lisa Heldke, I think her name is, has looked at um, hospitality using a Derridean lens and Raymond Boisvert as well. And my apologies to them if I'm pronouncing their names incorrectly. Yeah, it's Heldke and Boisvert, I believe. Well, thank you. You've, I appreciate that correction. Um, so they have drawn upon hospitality from a kind of continental Derridean tradition and applied the Derridean idea of hospitality to the philosophy of food. But what I think is really great here is hospitality is such a kind of foodie idea. It's something that links so strongly and so closely to food. So I think it's great that this is a concept that philosophers of food are deploying and exploring and criticizing and conceptualizing. And I think it's something that could be really helpful in thinking about human-animal relationships. But animal ethicists would never know that if they weren't ready to engage with the philosophy of food. Yeah, I think that's good. And also, I mean, from the other direction, I think that uh, philosophers who work on food, to the extent that they think of non-human animals, 
are either thinking about like the simple question of whether or not a consumer in the actual sense of that word uh, eats an animal. Should you eat, you know, should you be vegetarian? Should you be vegan? Does it not matter? What's like those sorts of questions. So the animals kind of disappeared from that conversation. It's just like a piece of meat. What should I do with this piece of meat that I have in front of me? Um, Or they will sometimes talk about animals in production, right? So the actual thinking about farming and, but again, usually with the slaughter of animals, either intentionally for things like cows or unintentionally for things like field mice. Um, but that sort of in-between space of uh, how do I interact with animals? Like, how do I hang out with them, just be with them or, or have them near me, um, even if I don't interact with them, uh, that that sort of middle space is often missed because uh, it's really easy so not everybody. And Helkin Boisvert's book is actually a good example, although they don't they don't talk too much about animals, but I think the framework works well. But it's really easy for philosophers of food to say, look, we've always only talked about eating, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to get the whole picture. So I'll also think about a food, how food is produced. There, I've done the whole thing. But, you know, the first chapter and the last chapter of a book is also still not the, the whole book. There's lots of elements of our lives otherwise. So I think that's really great. I think that's interesting. Absolutely. Um, and I think that there are other areas where animal ethicists are asking great questions that start to address questions that philosophers of food are also grappling with, and there could be real cross-pollinization. So I think a really nice example of this is about the metaphysics of food. And you might think, well, what have animal ethicists got to say about the metaphysics of food? Well, actually, a lot of people in animal ethics and animal studies have spent a long time reflecting on what meat is, yeah. what makes something meat, what, how should we conceptualize meat, how should we consider ourselves as meat, or should we not consider ourselves as meat, and these kinds of questions which I think are really enlightening when it comes to the question, the broader metaphysical questions about what makes this thing food versus not food, what makes this thing a particular kind of food, and so forth, which I think are central to the metaphysics, the ontology of food, which are, of course are such important pillars of the philosophy of food more broadly. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Um, man, her this one small article keeps coming up in so many interviews. So if, hey, listeners, you should really check this out because I talk about it weirdly, like without intending to like six times, but um, Val Plumwood's short piece on being prey on uh, almost being eaten herself uh, by a crocodile uh, is really interesting. You know, she's talking about thinking about ourselves in a, uh, in an ecosystem, thinking about ourselves as not outside of nature in some sense. And that really gets driven home when, when an animal is trying to eat you. And she, and, you know, again, for listeners who might not have read it yet, she literally was, this wasn't a hypothetical example. And like most philosophers uh, papers, she literally was almost eaten by a crocodile and wrote about how that was salutary for her relationship with the environmental uh, movement and the natural world generally. But I have students read that in my philosophy of food class, even though it's usually thought of as more of a environmental philosophy, animal philosophy kind of work, because Conceiving of yourself as food is an interesting sort of push on those barriers between food and not food kind of taboos. Um, so just to maybe start us off, what is the central kind of question that you think your book is, uh, is focused on? I suppose there's a few ways I could answer this question. So philosophically speaking, I think one of the central problems is the difference that our different relationships with animals mean for our responsibility concerning the harms they face and the harms that they cause. Right? That's a little bit abstract. So more practically speaking, I think the central question is about the circumstances in which we're obliged to feed animals, and conversely, the circumstances in which we're obliged to stop them from feeding. So when should I feed that animal over there? When should I stop that animal from 
hunting or killing another animal. So that might sound a little bit strange. Let me delve into this question of relationships to shine a little bit of a light on it. So the first thing to say is I'm an animal rights theorist. I believe that there are certain rights that animals have in virtue of the capacities that they have as individuals. So many animals are sentient. They experience pleasure and pain. I should put an asterisk there. That's a kind of non-technical definition of sentience. We can go into that in further detail if people are interested. But animals, many animals are sentient. They experience pleasure and pain. And that means that they have certain interests. They have interests in avoiding pain, for example. And those interests, for me, are enough to ground rights. So that's nothing to do with relationships. Okay. So this does start from a kind of non-relational perspective. However, I think that that needs to be complemented with a relational perspective, because I think that the obligations we have towards animals who themselves are very similar are very much coloured and shaded by the relationship that we have with them. So let me give you an example, which I don't think actually comes from the book, but it's an example I use in a paper I published recently. Imagine three dogs, three dogs who are very similar in terms of their own capacities, but to whom I have very, very different relationships. One of them is my own dog, who I live with. Another is a stray, who I maybe see on the street sometimes, but we keep our distance from each other. And another is a wild animal, like a wolf or a dingo or a coyote, who, when I'm hiking, say, I see off in the distance. And mm-hmm. Now, I don't have wolves and coyotes here in the UK, but maybe, <laughs> maybe they're more familiar to you than they are to me. Exactly. <laughs> so these animals are all quite similar. They all have similar mental capacities. They all have similar physical capacities. And so on the face of it, they all have very similar rights. But actually, there's a very obvious sense in which we have different relationships to them, and that colours the, the obligations that we have towards or concerning them. My companion dog might be confined by me. My companion dog might have mutual feelings of affection with me. My companion dog is in the position he or she is in because of the actions I have taken. Right. So these are different kinds of relationships, but they all point towards me having certain kinds of obligations. And it seems quite natural. I have a duty to feed her if she's in need. The non-companion, the wild animal, the wolf, he or she doesn't have any of those kinds of relationships to me. And in fact, might have quite the opposite. There's no straightforward way in which we can tell a story about me being responsible for her being where she is, for her being in trouble, for her being hungry, and so on. And in fact, we might think, given the kinds of relationships we don't have or the kinds of distant relationship we have, I might even have an obligation not to interfere with her not to provide her with assistance, even if she needs it, right? And I'm not committing to that, to be quite clear, but it's an idea that makes sense. It's got an intuitive ring to it. Whereas the stray seems to be somewhere in the middle. She's someone who maybe I have a sort of knowledge of, maybe I sort of know her, maybe she sort of knows me, maybe we recognize each other as neighbors, maybe we occasionally greet each other in some way. So maybe it'd be nice if I helped her out when in need, but I think it would be A surprising claim if I said, oh, we absolutely have to help her. I absolutely have to help her if she's in need, right? So again, I'm not committing to any particular claim here. All I'm suggesting is there's a very straightforward sense in which these different relationships ground quite different feeding obligations. So let me flip then to the other side. Those are examples relating to me feeding these animals when they're in need. But let me flip to the case of preventing them from feeding. Now, you might think, why on earth would I prevent an animal from feeding? Well, actually, if my dog 
is running around in my garden and is about to attack a hedgehog or a possum or a small bird, we might think, well, actually, yeah, me grabbing the dog and holding her back or me grabbing the hedgehog or the small bird and moving them to safety is absolutely the right thing to do, right? Because in this case, it seems as a straightforward sense in which I'm responsible to a degree for my dog's actions. My dog is successfully hurting or hunting these other animals because of me, because I have placed her in this situation, because I have allowed her off lead, as it were, literally or figuratively, to chase after this animal. And that seems to be morally salient. There's a very real sense that if my dog mauls a hedgehog in the garden, that the hedgehog's blood is on my hands, even though I have not hurt the hedgehog myself directly. But when it comes to the wild wolf, something completely different is going on. And again, we might think that there's something very strange if you say, oh, you have an obligation to intervene to prevent that wolf from attacking that hedgehog. I don't know if wolves do coexist yeah, with not, hedgehogs. It's not a hedgehogs. super common predator-prey relationship. But <laughs> <laughs> yes. So bad example there, but I'm sure you understand that the broad idea that sure. these wild animals, they're interacting with each other, and that's nothing to do with me in a very real sense. And indeed, we might think that I'm doing something wrong if I start to interfere in these relationships. Again, I'm not necessarily committing to that claim. I'm just suggesting there's something quite intuitively plausible about that. So even though we start with the very, well, I think, right idea that based upon the capacities of the animal in question, they have particular rights and we have certain duties and obligations towards them. And these could be moral, individual concerns. They could be broader societal, political concerns. We then get also, we need to complement that. We need to move on from that and talk about the different relationships that we have. And again, intuitively, there seems to be a big difference that these relationships can make. So if you like, this book is using this lens of feeding and using these scholarly backgrounds of animal ethics and the philosophy of food to reflect upon these different relationships that we have with animals and try to piece together and work out what they mean, normatively speaking. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I have a lot of, I mean, you said a lot there that I want to get into, but I think actually if I go through roughly the outline of the book, I'll get back to most of them. Although one thing I won't get to, it's not the right venue for it, but one of these days we'll have a beer together or something and I'll have a conversation with you about what rights are and how rights work uh, towards animals. Because it's not the place to get into debate, but I personally, <laughs> like my, my big problem with uh, Zoopolis is not that I think that they are going too far, which is the typical sort of critique to, to dare to give non-human animals uh, rights, which are things that should only attach to humans, but rather rights just seems like such a weird framework with so many odd, bad uh, consequences. I think it distorts community relationships. Uh, certainly, you know, living right here on the border between the U.S. and Mexico, the concept of citizens having rights uh, yes. distorts communities yeah. in a lot of really big ways. That I think also kind of goes towards animal. But anyway, love that fight on a on a a, uh, a analytic uh, political philosophy podcast that neither of us. <laughs> 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 but so let me go through the actual um, chapters. Um, so at the beginning, in the first couple chapters, you talk a lot about. Uh, different current developing and possible technologies for not feeding carnivorous animals, um, you know, such as like companion carnivores, like cats, obviously, uh, to not feeding them meat. Um, so to start, can you just mention some of the technologies you're thinking about? Yeah. So it strikes me that there's a lot of ways that, let's use pet food as an example, because this is something that's quite immediate and quite accessible, but we could talk about, you know, polar bear chow. That's something Claire Palmer talks about in right. one of her papers. Wonderful. There is this industry of polar bear chow. Anyways, 
Pet food at the moment, of course, is made in all kinds of ways. A lot of it is slaughter byproducts. Some of it is not slaughter byproducts, but um, meat that has been animals, meat from animals that have been killed specifically for pet food and so on. It also contains plants, contains additives, etc. So the question is, where are we going to get protein from for pet food if we want to reject the slaughter of animals? So there are three ideas that are floating around. Well, there's lots of ideas that are floating around, but the three ideas that are floating around that are really interesting to me. One is the possibility of plant-based pet food and deriving protein for animals from plants, possibly with various high-tech additives, possibly not, right? Depending on the particular plant and what's in it. And this could be soy, this could be potatoes, this could be legumes of various kinds. There's all sorts out there on the market, all sorts of people are trying. It could be fungi as well, which of course are not plants, technically speaking, but would still count as plant-based. So that's one avenue, plant-based pet food. And as you say, well, and as I should add, both of us are feeding our companions or some of our companions plant-based pet food. Difficult when it comes to cats. We'll get back to that in a second, no doubt. This also has relatively limited uptake. A lot of people are worried about it, perhaps for reasons we'll get into in a minute. So other avenues are being explored. One of my areas and something we talked about last time I was on this podcast is cultivated meat. I'm very excited about cultivated meat and cellular agriculture. I think listeners might be familiar with this technology, but roughly the idea is that we can take cells from a living animal or possibly an immortal cell line and grow these outside of an animal into meat. Now, this is technology that is in its infancy in some ways, but in other ways is is very well advanced. It's attracting millions and millions of dollars of investment. It's something that there's big news about all the time. Just this week, there was a big news story about a huge facility being built in the States to produce cultivated meat. And now that wasn't actually for pet food consumption, uh, pet consumption specifically or pet food production. But there are a number of companies, some quite well established, some very much just emerging, that are aiming to produce cultivated meat for pet food. So that's another avenue that's worth exploring. And then a third avenue is the use of invertebrates, invertebrate animals for pet food, right? Now, again, this this is something that people talk about in conversations about the future of food, using insects, using bivalves as human protein protein for human food. But there's also a conversation going about on about this in the pet food space. And indeed, there have been some pet foods launched which use protein from animals who are not the kinds of animals we typically imagine. They might be crickets, they might be soldier flies, etc. And from an animal rights perspective, all three of these are very interesting, right? And let me just note that none of them are controversy-free, even from an animal rights perspective. So insects, for example, they might be rights bearers. It depends on whether they're sentient. And then we have an interesting scientific question about whether they are, and an interesting ethical question about what to do in cases of uncertainty. Cultivated meat, we've got interesting questions about the use of animal products in the production. And we also have very interesting questions about the continued use of animals for cells. And then of course, plant-based pet food, we have interesting questions about whether this is sufficient, whether this can actually provide what is needed for the animals, whether that is in terms of nutrition or whether that is in terms of something else. Yeah. And I mean, certainly uh, as somebody who feeds their dogs uh, vegan food, uh, I I often get the reaction. I mean, people already think I'm weird that I eat vegan food. uh, And then we've ratcheted up the tension that I feed my children vegan food. 
And then when they find out that the dogs, because they'll often ask because they want to have like a ha ha gotcha, right? Yeah. Another thing to talk about sometimes is why do people like desperate to get you if you say you're vegan? Uh, like that weird like look up and down they do to see if you're wearing a leather belt or leather shoes. But anyway, yeah. so then they ask, uh, well, what about your dogs? And I say, oh, I'm feeding them vegan too. And it, it it's it just seems a bridge too far for a lot of people. I'm being ridiculous at like a, at a profound, like, well, now you're not serious. This is like some silly conversation, but there, but if you draw them into it, they'll say that they're worried about the dog's nutrition, but no discussion of nutrition is satisfying. So it seems that they're not actually concerned about nutrition or not what we nowadays in our modern world think of as nutrition. They're concerned with the elan vital, right? When they say nutrition, they mean there's like dogs need the vital life essence of other animals uh, to infuse their their anima, their spirit in order for them to, it's this weird like 1700s kind of conception <laughs> of what food is. Uh, but, and, and, or they'll just say, well, they must be sad all the time. They must just like sit and pine for this, which uh, to me is always interesting because you are positing such a complex inner life for non-human animals as someone who clearly eats meat in this, in this half of the conversation. Like, so you think like the, the dog sits around and feels morose at the thought of how their life could be better. Were they to have access to these other things and they sit around, feel sad, they talk to each other about it, I guess. Like, like that's such a complex inner life. If you think animals can have that, why, what are you doing eating them? The, these cows that you eat must feel despair and ennui. Like that's, to me, they're giving way too much when they make that move also. But um, yeah, so certainly you get a lot of pushback. Uh, so I think you're right there. So first of all, I, I guess maybe to, to deal with that first then. So for dogs, the maybe easier case. Um, is it, do you think nutritionally satisfying? And is it satisfying of, I guess the best argument for them would be like what a flourishing life is for dogs to not have like the kinds of tastes that they evolved to prefer, to think is, you know, yummy and delicious. Although my dogs really like their food, but um, you know, but that they have, you might say something like uh, an evolved capacity or an evolved, um, you know, response mechanisms that are ready and waiting to enjoy meat. Um, so you're you're denying them their full sort of talos, I guess. Yeah. Now there's so much here, and I think you're absolutely right about the way that people often respond and think, "Well, this is ridiculous." S- somehow, when we're talking about companion dogs or companion cats. This is a bridge too far, right? This this goes beyond reasonable conversation. I'm not quite sure why. Though it's it's funny, actually, because when I first started writing and talking about these questions kind of eight, nine years ago, so a, a little while ago, but not like the 70s or something like that. You know, this was this was recent. This was after people had heard of veganism. Yeah. I, I remember talking to a colleague, and she was she was a very much a friendly colleague. But when I started talking about feeding cats oysters and things, she literally laughed. She burst into laughter. And I think it's it's funny that I, I was met with literal laughter when I, I started on this this research project, and it was all it was all in good humor. I'm not trying to criticize anyone here, but it's striking that that's people's response when ultimately I'm talking about trying to remove the abject suffering of millions of animals <laughs> who are killed for pet food, or at least whose killing contributes to pet. Yeah, food. you might be right or wrong, but it's it, I mean, the, if you're right, the question's incredibly serious. You would think. Quite right. And I think you're also right about the way that this isn't really about health, right? It's about something, but pinpointing exactly what it's about is quite tricky. And I think that's one of the things that first attracted me to this question, incidentally, because it's not just meat eaters who get very hot under the collar about this question. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a joke, but if you want to go into if you want to start a fight between vegans, go onto a Facebook group or a forum populated by vegans and ask about vegan cat food and watch the feathers fly. 
right? This is something that really gets people angry because people draw these dividing lines and they say, oh, well, you're not vegan if you're feeding your cat meat. And they say it's animal abuse if you fail to feed your cat meat, right? So there's, there's a real kind of tension there. But I think on this subject, and you know, we could talk about all these different divisions, all these different arguments that people try out. So I will answer your question in a second. But I think there's something very strangely selective, as you as you're alluding towards, that people become incredibly concerned about the welfare of a dog or a cat, in that they've got a protein source that is not quite what this individual believes is, I don't know, the natural one or the tastiest one or whatnot. Yet there is zero concern for the welfare of the animals who are killed to produce this tasty or natural or whatever source of protein. And I think there's there's something very curious going on there. Why is it that people are so willing to ask about the welfare of the dog, but not ask about the welfare of the animals in the dog's bowl? Now, to answer your actual question, I guess there was there was two sides to the question. One was about palatability, one was about health. Oh, and then yeah. there, of course there was also the question about telos, and I'll get to that last. So the first thing to say is I'm a philosopher. I'm not an expert on dog palatability, or I'm not an expert on veterinary nutrition. So all I can do is respond to the existing literature in those areas and try to reflect upon what the, what the philosophical or ethical arguments would be if different things were said. Sorry, that's slightly abstract, but let me be more concrete now. There's actually been a number of studies on feeding dogs and cats vegan diets. And actually, overwhelmingly, they seem to be pretty strongly okay with it. I was going to say in favour, that's not quite what I want to say. There are some studies that are in favour in the sense that they suggest that vegan diets for dogs might be actually healthier than yeah, non-vegan diets. Uh, this is something that's recently got a lot of press attention from the work from Andrew Knight down at Winchester, Andrew Knight and colleagues. Andrew Knight's part of a really good big project that I'll get back to in a minute about feeding companion animals um, plant-based food. And so there is occasionally, there are a few studies that suggest more mixed results, right? There was a study, for example, on some commercially available uh, vegan plant-based pet foods that found that they weren't quite as nutritionally adequate as they suggested. Um, the study didn't name which particular brands they were. I, I don't know what brands they were, though that's a cause for concern, right? There, there are questions to be raised about the particular brands that are out there. But the, the evidence seems to be that there's no particular reason to believe that dogs cannot thrive long-term on nutritionally sound plant-based diets and that there are plenty of nutritionally sound plant-based diets out there. We're talking here about commercial, balanced, complete diets. I'm not talking about people who cook their own food for their companion animals. Again, it can be done, but it's tricky. Or it's at least trickier than relying on uh, pet foods that have been formulated by the relevant experts. Yeah. Now, on palatability, um, there weren't any studies that I came across that were, or well, very few studies that I came across that have existed for a while that are looking at plant-based food in particular. But there has been one, again, published very recently as part of Andrew Knight's project, looking at palatability. And kind of unsurprisingly, he found that there's not any great difference in palatability based on various indicators of palatability that we have for dogs, because of course, we can't just ask them how they find it. Um, between plant-based and more conventional pet foods. So the evidence just doesn't seem to be there. I think a lot of people assume the dogs are gonna like this food less, but let me be clear, my, my dog eats goose poop 
right? <laughs> Good point. My, my dog eats all the vegetables I try to grow. She seems to have a goal for, uh, especially my new puppy. He really goes for radishes, for example. I've given up trying to grow radishes this year. Um, and I can't grow brassicas unless they're quite high up because, again, he'll just tear them apart. So anyways, my point is that dogs are quite happy to eat lots of things. Mm -hmm. Cats, fussier eaters. Cats, more complex nutritional needs. So again, I accept that these are slightly more complex questions. But actually, the empirical evidence again seems to suggest that cats can flourish on plant-based diets. I allow that animals are individuals. And I allow that animals have certain health conditions, for example, that might challenge particular diets that they have. Same as with humans, right? So for some cats, it might be more accessible or less accessible. But again, this is just based on my reading of the scientific literature. And as I say, there are ongoing studies in this area which are replicating these kinds of results. Now, various veterinary organizations can be quite conservative. And so they are reluctant often to endorse plant-based diets. They will often say things like, we acknowledge that many animals do succeed in eating these diets and they are doing well. And we acknowledge that there are nutritionally complete versions on the market. But then they'll say, but we want more studies of XYZ caliber. We want more studies in this style, in this style, in this style. Right. Well, I can and also I say, in, I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, uh, vet, I, I know vets, uh, they are uh, given very little training in nutrition, even if they tra they're training to be small animal vets, uh, very, very little, just <laughs> very cursory. And what they are given uh, both during school and especially afterwards with supplemental information that's given to them is largely sponsored by uh, one particular company, which uh, my listeners in the US might notice, uh, you'll know which company it is because it's the one that has their food for sale in vets offices. Uh, they provide uh, a, a science uh, of the diet, if you'll know what I mean, if you're an American uh, listener, that they give out pamphlets teaching doctors about or vets about nutrition. And uh, they also have a uh, commercial relationship with vets where if they sell their uh, product, then they get kickbacks. And so vets in the U.S. tend to be quite conservative in the sense that they they repeat things that you can also read on the back of those bags and uh, recommend that diet that they sell for a profit in the front office. Certainly. Now, Marion Nestle, who is someone we'll both know her work on food studies, of course, she's written a couple of books about pet food specifically. One was called Pet Food Politics and is about a very famous contamination case uh, in pet food. And the other is called Feed Your Pet Right. And she talks about this at great length. And she is very concerned about this. Now, her concern comes not primarily, I think it's fair to say, from concern with companion animals, but with what this can tell us about the human food system. But nonetheless, she identifies serious shortcomings in the US and elsewhere about the relationship between vets and the pet food industry, and more broadly, the regulation of the pet food industry. And so I think that my experience with vets has been positive, with regard to my dogs at least, um, on plant-based food. But I remember one time I was talking to a vet and she said, well, we have no problem with dogs fed an appropriate plant-based diet, as long as it's not cats, because cats are carnivores. And I right. thought, right, that's interesting. And I thought, I was in a vet's office. I thought, here's not the time for to raise complex philosophical questions about the nature of carnivory. But I think, well, here, this podcast might well be. Let me, let me note that this 
categorization of carnivore. This is a kind of biological category, maybe even a fork biological category, that is ascribed to particular beings that fall on a particular place on a spectrum, <laughs> from herbivory to carnivory, with omnivory in the middle, and then various other kinds of eating habits on the outside. The fact that an animal is a carnivore, and even is a strictly carnivore, an obligate carnivore, as cats are, does not make it some kind of ontological impossibility that this animal could thrive on a plant-based diet. It does not mean that the animal will automatically die or automatically suffer if they are not eating meat. It certainly means that they have evolved in a particular way to favour meat-based diets. But let's be quite clear that companion animals, talking about nature and evolution in relation to companion animals is incredibly complex because these animals have been shaped by us and have been shaped by their relationship with us, right? There are no wild Jack Russells, right? So it's very strange to start talking about what is natural for a Jack Russell. It's very strange to say, well, it's important that a Jack Russell or a Maine Coon or whoever it might be needs to have certain natural traits, natural diets, natural habits. Well, does that mean they shouldn't be living in human houses? Does that mean they shouldn't be fed food by humans at all? Does that mean that they shouldn't have toys? Does that mean they shouldn't have veterinary visits? You know, I could continue going, right? The point is, it's very strange how selective people are about the importance of nature and the importance of, as you were suggesting before, telos, when it comes to animals eating or animals hunting, perhaps. Yeah. When they aren't concerned about that, when it comes to all the ways that we interact with these animals. Yeah, and I actually wrote a paper uh, some years back about how people talk about breed-specific flourishing, uh, even if they don't use that phrase, for dogs, where they'll say, well, he's a a border collie, he's a shepherd, he's whatever, you know, he's a dog that likes to herd. And so, like, I'm, I'm paying all this money to bring this dog out to a place where there are sheep so he can chase the sheep around for a while because that's in his nature. Or these dogs are friendly, you know, labs are friendly, uh, pit bulls, the, then the other part of this argument then it goes into pit bulls are violent. And so there's breed-specific legislation um, in the U.S. and Canada, at least, that's targeting these animals because they accept the breed flourishing arguments. Um, and also, uh, in that paper, I look at interviews with people that are in jail for dog fighting. Yeah. And they, their justifications are also breed-specific flourishing. They also say, if you saw these dogs fight and how much they loved it, you would know that what I did wasn't wrong. These dogs love doing that. Um, and so I sort of look at like how weird it is that we think that there's this, especially if it's, so it's a created class, we made these things, we bred them, and then they have uh, what a flourishing life is uh, based on some behavior that we've identified, right? That it isn't about tendencies that can go in different ways or whatever. So I, I look at it in that, but it is it is seemingly a really strong argument for a lot of people, both people that like dogs and don't like dogs. Um, so what what about that argument that, look, and they're, they're meant to, in some sense, eat meat and you're kind of depriving them of the kind of life that we, that, that, that they ought to have, you know, giving them some sort of like secondary, less good, less good life. I think that's right. It's a very... It's a fraught area, okay, because this is a question that combines ethics and metaphysics and various areas of philosophy. And so it's quite a difficult one to dig down into. Let me offer a few different answers. The first thing to say, I reject this kind of tail reasoning in the first place. I'm very sceptical about it already. And, you know, I think you only need to sit down and read Aristotle to understand why we should be very reluctant to endorse this kind of thing, right? He makes 
very, I think, good arguments, given his metaphysics for slavery, for the subjection of women, for the subjection of non-Greeks even, right? Mm -hmm. Very few people get into politics on his view, and animals certainly don't. So I think that we should be, and let me be clear, I'm not saying that everybody who believes in Talos advocates slavery, but I do think everybody who believes I, in Talos. That's a pull quote for the episode. Yes. <laughs> well, let, let me, let, here's one for you. I do think everybody who advocates Talos has serious questions to answer about slavery. Yeah. Um, that's perhaps less controversial, but still somewhat controversial. So I, I reject that kind of thinking. I don't think that species is this kind of metaphysically significant thing. I certainly don't think breed is this metaphysically significant thing. In the same way, I don't think that race is this metaphysically significant thing, right? I see these all on a kind of continuum. So I'm, I'm reluctant to endorse Talos based on species or breed or, or what have you for that kind of reason. A second thing to say is, look, let's take your border collie case because it's a wonderful one. Look, even if it is the Talos of a particular border collie to chase sheep, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have an overwhelming duty to allow this border collie to chase sheep. That needs to be balanced with the other kinds of obligations that we have, right? For example, to the sheep, right? And this goes back to this, this what I was saying before about the incredible concern for whether this dog likes the taste of that food or that food versus the incredible kind of lack of concern for the abject suffering of the animals who are being killed to make one of those kinds of food. So I think we can ask serious questions about how a Talos-based duty interacts with other duties that we have to other animals or other people or other entities. And I think Martha Nussbaum is someone who grapples with this question quite directly. She's someone who, a very significant philosopher, for those who don't know her, she, she, co she covers a lot of different areas of philosophy, ancient philosophy, aesthetics, ethics, politics, and so forth, metaphysics. So she's covered a lot of different areas of philosophy. And she talks about telos and talks about the flourishing of animals based upon their species-specific flourishing, drawing on this kind of Aristotelian idea. But she says that we shouldn't endorse capacities or capabilities is her word. We shouldn't endorse the capabilities that animals have purely because they're capabilities. Instead, we need to offer independent ethical examination. So I think her example when it comes to humans is something like, we have the capability to be racist. We have the capability to be sexist. That might be part of what it is to be us, right? Having that capability. But that's an abhorrent thing. That's not something that we should be protecting. That's not something that we should be trying to encourage. So we need to ask, given the capabilities of particular animals, are these capabilities doing something that is one, central to the flourishing of that animal, and two, the sort of thing that we should be endorsing. So even if chasing sheep is central to the capabilities of a border collie, it might not be the kind of thing that we should be supporting, should be endorsing, should be protecting. And she uses a very particular example of a big cat kept in a zoo. Now, we can ask all kinds of questions about zoos, of course, but she says, this zoo does not choose to give a gazelle to this, to this big cat to chase. Instead, the zoo allows the big cat to exercise his or her capabilities related to hunting, chasing, by giving this animal a tire on a swing. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a perfect solution, 
But I think that Newsbaum's point is an excellent one. When animals are living in our society under our control, we have to ask serious questions about how we can protect their capabilities while still respecting the rights of other animals and other people. Yeah, so I have two questions to go with that. But first, let me just, because we we're focusing on dogs, let me just hit cats briefly, because it is the harder situation. Mm. And then I want to talk about our, our responsibility towards uh, wild animals um, that are under our care or that we're interacting with. But first for the cats, um, yeah, so is it the case then, like to the zoopolis point, that if we don't currently have the technology to feed them impossible burger or cat food, or if... Uh, plant-based cat food is expensive, which it is, uh, or difficult, um, then we, for people for whom that is true, which is most people right now, that, yeah. cat, that they shouldn't have cats, that we should, like, it's, it's wrong to have pets. And I'm using that word instead of companion animal on purpose right here, that it's wrong to have what they think of as pets, that they shouldn't have cats. So at least the population of cats should be much, of domestic living indoors cats should be much, much smaller. I think this is a fraught area. I'm not going to I'm not going to come out and say that people should not have cats if they're unable to feed the cats a vegan diet. That's that's certainly not my belief. I think that there's ethical fraud ethical complexities here. And to speak personally, I would not have a cat myself unless, you know, of course, as we know, cats sometimes land on our lap beyond our control. I wouldn't have had a cat either. They came into my house. Quite. So I would not actively adopt a cat, partly because I'm concerned about the, these kind of fraught ethical questions. And I know lots of people who have cats who have tried plant-based food and the cats have rejected plant-based food. And that puts us in a very difficult position. And I think we then end up in a kind of non-ideal ethics situation. And I'm inclined to draw a kind of distinction between our individual obligations and our collective obligations. So it strikes me that we might have collective obligations to move towards a world in which we don't face these challenges, such as a world in which cultivating meat-based pet food or otherwise a variety of plant-based cat food are available. What does that mean for us here and now? Well, it means that we can engage in more or less harmful activities. And I explore lots of possibilities for people who currently have companion animals who are facing these challenges and who, for whom, for whatever reason, and as you say, there are a variety of reasons, for whatever reason, plant-based food is not accessible. And I don't, I, don't, I don't pretend that these are easy options. I don't pretend that these are perfect options, but there are options available. So I talk, for example, about the possibility of scavenging meat, right? Um, whether that is meat that is being thrown out, whether that is meat roadkill or animals who have died naturally, whether that is, you know, there are potentially options available where we can access meat, meat that our cats might be perfectly happy to eat, that has not, that, well, so let me put it like this. We can access this meat in a way such that we are not funding, supporting the meat industry. And this is something that is a much ethically better option than continuing to pay for meat and continuing to actively support the meat industry is something that we should be challenging. Now, I accept that that's a very complex situation and I accept that that's not something that's going to be accessible to lots of people, but there might be other options as well. So, for example, I talked about non-sentient animals. I talked about animals who may or may not be sentient. You know, if I had a cat, maybe I'd be more inclined to try feeding him or her certain forms of seafood 
uh, invertebrate seafood that comes from animals who may or may not be rights bearers, rather than feeding him or her the meat of animals who are definitely rights bearers, such as fish, like chicken, like cows. Yeah. So these are fraught. These are fraught issues. And I think it's worth saying, this is something I mentioned in another interview recently. As an ethicist, I'm not trying to do finger wagging, right? I'm not trying to act like, you know, the fussy parent or the priest or the teacher and say, here's how you have to behave. Sit up straight, do your tie up, right? That's not the kind of approach I'm doing. I'm trying to take difficult ethical issues and apply what I take to be the best available methodologies for reaching a solution here. And I accept that that might sometimes be indeterminate. And I accept that that might sometimes reach unsatisfying answers. And I think that that's the nature of doing applied ethics. Yeah, Applied ethics is always going to have that element of unsatisfyingness in a way that very theoretical ethics sometimes doesn't. Yeah. And I think that's smart. Uh, it's very easy because it's sort of a, a trick that comes naturally to people to to do to, when they hear ethically challenging things, things that make force them or invite them to reconsider uh, assumptions they've made about the world. Like even my undergraduate students will do this. Um, you know, if you say that, if you just mention that you're vegan, people will often say something like, well, what about somebody who can't be vegan because of health reasons? What about somebody who lives in a poor developing country who can't afford meat or who has just a little bit of money and one of their few joys in life is like the occasional meat? It's like, it's weird that we're moving immediately to this odd edge case. And I, I think, don't we both know the reason why is because you don't want to think about your own life. You want to think about some odd, strange kind of case. Like, are you that person? Are you the person that we're talking about here or uh, what's going on? But the reason why is because they want you to have a perfectly consistent answer. And if you don't have one, then they say, okay, then anyone can do whatever they want, which is yeah. clearly false. Or you do have one and they say, oh, well, you're a radical ideologue, in which case I can discount whatever you're saying and we can do whatever we want. You're kind of, you know, it's it's this double bind that is very, it's like the natural rhetorical move against an ethical challenge that people do. So I think saying that it's, well, it's complicated is how you be a good um, sort of dialogue partner in an ethical conversation or a teacher in an ethics class is say that, you know, it is neither the case that there's an easy checklist you can go through, nor is it the case that you can do whatever you want. Rather, it's a case that is hard. And we have to keep thinking about it, <laughs> which that's that line to keep them on. Certainly. And I take a lot of influence from Robert Nozick, who is mm. not always the most popular mm. philosopher. Mm. Yes, right. Again, again, this, again, this uh, analytic uh, political philosophy podcast that we should start just so I can fight with you about these things. But go on, go on. I, I, I should say I'm not an advocate of Nozick's view necessarily, but I think he has a lot of insights that are very valuable, including metaphilosophical insights. And he has this wonderful passage where he talks about there is room for words on a subject other than a last word. Yeah, He sees himself as part of a conversation, whereas I think some philosophers, and I'm not going to name names here, but some <laughs> philosophers seem to want to say, this is the answer. Now we can move on. I've solved it. Yeah, right. And I think we can take steps towards solving particular problems. I absolutely do. I do believe in philosophical progress. But I think that we, we need a degree of intellectual honesty and a degree of modesty to recognize that even if we might be taking a step in the right direction. We probably haven't got all the way there. Or if we have, the the solution we found is going to be a very small, very specific solution. So we need to recognize that it might not apply in other kinds of cases. So if people read my book and took away from it, right, I need to have a think about what my animals are eating. I need to have a look online, see what my options are. I need to go and read this literature for myself and see what nutritional claims are being made. 
And if they were to then respond and say, well, I'm going to try out this plant-based food for my dog or my cat, or I'm going to try out this, you know, in five years time, 10 years time, this in vitro, in vitro meat based pet food. Great. I'd be really happy with that. Sure. But at the same time, this is not meant to be a handy how-to guide, how to feed your animals, right? Imagine. You'd sell more copies if you said that, but yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the funny thing. I'm looking. I mentioned Marion Nestle's book just before, and one of Marion Nestle's book is called Feed Your Pet Right. <laughs> this is, this, my book is not Feed Your Pet Right. right. My book is here are some ethical and political questions, and here are some frameworks, some ideas to help, to help us collectively grapple with those. Yeah, that, that annoying habit of philosophers invite you to think more is why we're less popular in, in our book <laughs> than some of these others. That was part one of my conversation with Josh Milburn. In a couple of weeks, I'll upload part two, in which we'll talk about feeding wild animals, ethical issues surrounding captive and rescued predators, and more. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Josh's new book, so be sure to check it out. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on YouTube. I'll put a link to our YouTube channel in the show notes on Twitter at foodthoughtpod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 